Well, today we continue our seven-week series through the book of Esther. We have been exploring what Esther has to teach us about living faithfully in the midst of a society that increasingly opposes the people of God. The events of the book of Esther take place as the people of God are in exile. They are living at the mercy of a foreign government, the Persian Empire. And God called his people to submit and honor and serve and pray for the empire, to seek the welfare of the empire. But as we've seen over the past few weeks, Mordecai and Esther have had to learn to do that faithfully. They started out hiding their Jewish identity and scheming for power and influence. But now a man named Haman has convinced the king to permit the annihilation of the Jewish people. And this forces Mordecai and Esther out of hiding. Esther resolves to petition the king on behalf of her people. And so she holds a feast for the king and for Haman. And the king agrees to grant Esther her request. He says, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. But mysteriously, Esther delays making her request. Instead, she invites them to yet another feast on the following day. And our passage today tells the story of Esther's second feast. But before we dive into Esther chapter 7, we need to lay some groundwork. We're going to go back in time a bit to understand some of the context surrounding the events recorded here. As I've mentioned a number of times now, Mordecai was a Benjaminite. He was from the Israelite tribe of Benjamin. And Haman was an Agagite, a descendant of Agag. Agag was king of the Amalekites, and the Amalekites had a long history of opposing the Jewish people and their God. In Exodus chapter 17, the people of Israel are traveling their way through the desert, having just been delivered from captivity in Egypt. And Deuteronomy 25 tells us that many of them were tired and thirsty. Some of them were beginning to lag behind the group. And so the Amalekites come and attack the people of Israel from the rear. They slaughter the weakest travelers, likely the sick and the elderly and the families with young children. And so the Lord says to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now, we can jump ahead to 1 Samuel 15, where King Saul is commissioned to blot out the memory of Amalek. King Saul is charged by God to blot out the Amalekites. But Saul refuses to do it. He totally destroys the Amalekites, but he spares their king, King Agag. And so what does this have to do with the book of Esther? Well, the God of Israel has sworn to destroy the Amalekites, the house of Agag, from which Haman is a descendant. So had King Saul blotted out the Amalekites, there would have been no Haman to threaten the Jews with annihilation. What's more is that King Saul was a Benjaminite, just like Mordecai. And so this ancient conflict, is, it's looming in the background. 
It's once again the Benjaminites versus the Amalekites. And the attentive reader should be wondering, will this, will this conflict reach a resolution this time? Will the Amalekites continue to plague the Jewish people? Or will they be blotted out once and for all? Esther chapter 7, verse 2. The king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Notice she begins by implying that her own life is in danger. That's crafty. She appeals to the king in a way that the king cannot ignore. Someone has been bold enough to threaten the life of the queen of Persia. And keep in mind, at this point, Haman still has no idea that Esther is a Jew. Up until this point, Esther was the queen from nowhere. She had no apparent factional loyalties. And and honestly, the king probably liked that about her. After all, he was governing 127 provinces, an expansive empire. So the king needed a queen who could be from nowhere, so to speak, who could represent the entire kingdom. But now Esther is going to reveal her factional loyalties. Esther is going to reveal that she belongs to a particular ethnic group. And so she has to be very careful with her words. Verse 4. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Now, when we, when we first read this, it sounds a bit strange. Esther tells the king that if the Jews were merely being enslaved, she wouldn't bother him with it. Esther is flattering the king, but she is also making a carefully crafted argument. She seems to be implying that the king is being swindled. He's being robbed in some way. How so? Well, Back in chapter 3, Haman offered the king... 10,000 talents of silver in exchange for permission to annihilate the Jewish people. And some historians have suggested that the Jewish people would have been worth far more than 10,000 talents of silver had the king opted to just sell them as slaves. If that's true, then, then Esther's argument here is quite savvy. She is essentially saying, listen, if, if you were to sell the Jews into slavery... That I could understand. But Haman wants to kill the Jews for less money. So Haman must have ulterior motives. He's just picking off his political rivals. And who knows, King Ahasuerus, maybe he'll try to pick you off next. Now, remember, earlier in the day, this, this day, the king had ordered Haman to to parade Mordecai through the streets on the king's horse. And this was on account of Mordecai's loyalty to the king. And so the king may have already 
already had his suspicions about Haman. He may have already been recognizing that Haman's original portrayal of the Jewish people, really, that can't be true. Mordecai, the Jew, is a faithful subject. Esther, the Jew, is a good queen. How can Haman be right about the Jews? Regardless, we can see from how the king and Haman respond that Esther has made a compelling case. Haman is terrified, and the king is enraged. Verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Last week we talked about the great reversals of the book of Esther. And here we see several more reversals. Back in chapter 3, Haman wanted to annihilate the Jews because a Jew refused to bow before him. And now Haman is bowing before a Jew, pleading so as not to be annihilated. We also see more of the Genesis 3 theme that has been running through this book. The king is playing the role of Adam. He's walking in his garden. And when he returns, Eve is seemingly being assaulted by the serpent. Esther is seemingly being assaulted by Haman. In a sense, this scene is is redeeming both Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, Eve is deceived by the serpent. But now Esther is proving herself more crafty and wise than the serpent. In Genesis 3, Adam fails to guard and protect Eve. But now King Ahasuerus takes action to guard and protect his queen. At the king's order, Haman is hanged on the very same gallows that he had constructed for the execution of Mordecai. Haman continues to fall and Mordecai continues to rise. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 8, the king takes the royal signet ring from Haman and he gives it to Mordecai. Mordecai is now second in command. In addition, the king gives Esther the house of Haman and Esther sets Mordecai over the house of Haman which is very significant. The house of Agag is being handed over here to the tribe of Benjamin. The Amalekites have finally been blotted out. Now, I didn't mention this last week, but it's well worth pointing out. The Hebrew word translated gallows in, here in the English Standard Version is really just the Hebrew word for tree. Haman wants to hang Mordecai on a tree, but Haman is hanged on a tree. And as we are told in Deuteronomy 21 and Galatians 3, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And yes, of course, cursed was Christ who was hanged upon a tree. You see, Christians serve a king, 
who does not scheme for greater authority. We serve a king who is willing to set aside his authority for our sake. When we are unfaithful and disloyal, he doesn't lobby for our execution. He was willing to face execution on our behalf. He redeems us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Extended on a cursed tree, besmeared with dust and sweat and blood, see there the king of glory, see, sinks and expires the son of God. But again, the great reversal of all great reversals. Jesus Christ dies upon a tree and thereby wins the victory. Didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. Jesus dies upon a tree and thereby wins the victory. According to Colossians chapter 2, it was actually on the cross that Jesus triumphed over his enemies. It was on the cross. And so Jesus dies like Haman, but he is raised like Mordecai. And just as all the Jews were saved by the courage and faithfulness of Esther, so we are saved by the courage and faithfulness of Christ. We share in his victory. Today is All Saints' Eve, or All Hallows' Eve, and tomorrow is All Saints' Day. Traditionally, All Saints' Day is a Christian feast whereby the church remembers and celebrates the victory we share as those who have been united to Christ. Our enemies have been defeated. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Darkness is giving giving way to light. On All Saints Day, we also take time to remember the exemplary courage and faithfulness of saints who have gone before us. Saints like Queen Esther. Esther's world was, was spinning out of control. God was seemingly nowhere to be found. Remember, he's never mentioned in this book. He's nowhere to be found. The righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering. And yet Esther resolves to do the difficult yet faithful thing. And so we have, I think, in the book of Esther, an opportunity to reflect deeply upon the interplay of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Our our responsibility in light of God's being in control. How does that work? The book of Esther doesn't really resolve the apparent conflict, but it it does teach us a bit how to live into that tension. And I think this is very important for us as 21st century Christians. As a general rule, most of us are living with a good deal of anxiety right now. The world has always been a broken place, but the internet and social media have exacerbated that sense of anxiety. COVID-19 has exacerbated that sense of anxiety. We can all identify with Esther to a degree. The world seems like it's spinning out of control. And that can lead us to question whether God is in control. 
And that can, that can lead us to question whether our efforts are even worthwhile. Well, let's see what we can learn from Esther. In the end, Esther's courage and faithfulness were actually necessary to bring Haman to justice. She devised a bold and crafty plan, and she executed that plan with strength and faith. And yet, Esther's courage and faithfulness were not what ultimately saved her people. Remember, the the story ultimately hinges upon the king having a sleepless night. The decisive event has nothing to do with Esther and Mordecai. They could repent and fast and pray and resolve to bear witness. And they were right to do so. But ultimately, it was the hand of God. The sovereign hand of God at work. Gently guiding this story and and every other story. All of our stories toward a fitting conclusion. So it ultimately depends on God, but it also depends on us. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The Lord is ultimately the one building the house, but he uses builders to build it. Can can God build a house by himself? Of course he can build a house by himself. But he has demonstrated a preference for letting us join him in that process. Under the surface, I, I think that's what we can learn from the book of Esther. Do you want to see your friends come to know Jesus? Pray for them. Reflect upon their deepest spiritual needs. Look for opportunities to share the gospel in thoughtful and targeted ways. God is ultimately in control, but he wants you to join him. Do you want a better marriage? Don't sit back and wait for your spouse to change. Be a better spouse. Pray, love, serve, engage, repent. God is ultimately in control, but he wants you to join him. Do you want to remedy a social problem? Feed the homeless, free the captives, foster a child, start a nonprofit, run for the school board or the city council. God is ultimately in control, but he wants you to join him. Do you want to see the kingdom come in Oak Forest or wherever you live? Open your home to your neighbors. Share a meal with them. Find ways to serve them and bless them. God is ultimately in control but he wants you to join him. Jesus has won the victory, but but he is calling upon you and me to apply that victory. The decisive moment happened 2,000 years ago. There is still work left to be done. And that's what we're going to see next week as the story continues. For Esther and Mordecai, there was still work to be done. Look at, look at verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. The wrath of the king abated. If you think about it, that's, that's actually very bad news for Esther 
and Mordecai and the Jewish people. The wrath of the king abated. They needed, they needed the wrath of the king. You see, Haman was dead, but Haman's genocidal decree was still on the books. The serpent was crushed, but the world was still covered in darkness. And so Esther and Mordecai will have to find a way to undo the decree and to deliver the people of God from the lingering forces of evil. So, tune in next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are in control. And we declare that to be a good thing. We don't understand how it works. We don't always understand what you are doing. But you have proven yourself trustworthy. And that is enough. Jesus, thank you for becoming a curse for us, for being hanged on a tree for our sake, to redeem us and to blot out the forces of evil that have plagued the world for so long. Holy Spirit, make us faithful and courageous like you have done time after time after time in the lives of saints who have gone before us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.